thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. San Francisco, Mutiny Radio. San Francisco, Mutiny Radio. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. Bird Fridays of every month at 7.30. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank Gods, it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG. Check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious comics. Every Friday. San Francisco, gouging you. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG. 6th Street. Come on out with your friends from Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at O-M-G. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? When all the witches were mad and moonstruck When the shrinking and the shocking and the mocking were rife We still found each other Good morning everyone, welcome to Labor and Love There was a time before demonstrations When the queens and fairies were shy and fearful We ran and we hid from the fist and the knife And we still found each other, the ones in the life. Do you know Dorothy? Do you have the time? Have you got a light, dear? Change for a dime? Do you come here often? I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time before celebration When all my sisters were ghosts and shadows Every femme had a butch, every husband a wife And we still found each other the ones in the life do you know dorothy do you have the time have you got a light dear change for a dime 
Do you come here often? I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen. There was a time back before Stonewall. We heard the jokes and we joined the laughter. We lied and we passed and avoided the strife. But we still found each other, the ones in the life. We still found each other. Elegy for Jane. I remember the next. Now, won't you hear me swinging? Hear the words that I'm singing. Smudge my soul with water from on high. While the world of love is around me, evil thoughts do by me. Oh, if you leave me, I will die. You just hide me in my bosom. Hell is time, the life is over. Oh, rock me in the cradle of thy love. Only be you take me to your blessed home above. See, I'm maintaining, I just go on and complaining. But before this time, another year, oh, my life may all forsake me, and death may overtake me. But if I am with him, I have no need to fear. You just hide me in thy bosom. Tell us time of life is over. Rock me in the cradle of thy love. Oh, defeat me. Hell, I want no more. Then you take me to your blessed home above. Oh, make my journey brighter. You just make my burden lighter. Help me to do good wherever I can. Oh, let thy presence thrill me. Thy loving kindness fill me. Then you hold me. In the hollow of the hand.
Avenue With a childlike vision sleeping into view The click and clacking of the high heel shoe Ford and Fitzroy, Madam Joy Marching with the soldier boy behind He's much older now with head on drinking wine And that smell of sweet perfume comes drifting through Oh, the cool night, oh, like Shalimar That's the making of the stops A kids out in the street collecting bottle tops Gone for cigarettes and matches in the shops Happy taking Madam Joy Oh, that's when you fall Whoa, 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 whoa That's when you fall Yeah, that's when you fall Sitting on a sofa playing games of chance With your folded arms and history books you glance Into the eyes of Madame George Nose and drag. The one and only Madam George. Look from outside, the frosty window wraps. She jumps up and says, Lord have mercy, I think that it's the cops. Everything she got down into the street below.
Welcome, everybody. This is the B, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Welcome on a Saturday, Saturday at 10.
started out our our first set today um, acknowledgement pride week and also the idea that people organize there's no force on earth that can stop Working people, when they organize, and make no mistake about it, Stonewall was at the intersection of gay people who were just sick and tired of being treated like ghosts. And working people who wanted to show up at Stonewall to have a good time whenever they could even in the shadows. Before that, we had four Stonewall. Then Sister Rosetta Tharp, guitar maestra, her version of Rock Me. <coughs> and then Van Morris's beautiful, beautiful and loving song, Madam George, about a Queen, drag queen, who lived in his neighborhood. A beautiful song. This is The Bee. My name is Bill Morgan, and we're coming to you today on from Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. True Community Arts Center. And... We tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu when they all sit down, cut up your life for you. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio where the labor meets the road. Well, we've got a show for you today. As usual, we've got too much stuff. We'll take our best shot at covering it. Let's see. We got radio labor. We got labor history in two from Rick Smith. We got Juneteenth. Is it just a coincidence that Juneteenth and Stonewall fall very close to one another? Is there something about people wanting their freedom, wanting their liberty? That happens at this time of year. And we do. We have a documentary about Stonewall and one about Juneteenth, which you will find interesting, I guarantee you. Francesca Fiorentini, why college costs so much. Why does college cost so much? And uh, Mr. Rosetta Tharp, as we said, we played her, a little background on her and who she was at the intersection of 
the blues, and gay people. Okay, what's going on with AI? Um, Report from Democracy Now! How AI is enabling racism and sexism. And um, Teamsters, working class, labor notes, we got them here for you. Gus Newport, a progressive titan, former mayor of Berkeley. And Tracy Chapman. Music from Tracy Chapman. Right now, let's get started with Radio Labor. Radio Labor is telling us today about how the first Starbucks was unionized in the U.S. Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, June 15th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. On December 9th, 2021, we won the first Starbucks union in the U.S. at my store. That is Michelle Eisen. She was speaking at the 2023 Congress of the International Union of Food Workers. The IUF has 12 million members in countries all around the world. It is holding its Congress in Geneva, Switzerland, June 13th to 16th, 2023. I started with Starbucks in 2010. I'm a production stage manager in the theater industry and I needed a flexible day job that would provide me with health benefits. Enter Starbucks a self-proclaimed progressive company that stated that they cared about the environment, the community, and their workers, or partners, as they referred to them. And for a time after I was hired, I really believed that to be the case. Fast forward to June of 2021. I, like hundreds of thousands of service workers in the U.S., worked through the bulk of the COVID pandemic in customer-facing positions, putting ourselves and our families at risk daily. And in almost all cases, the companies that we worked for completely failed us. We were called essential, but we were treated as disposable. And I was done. I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I could not continue to work for a company that so blatantly undervalued its partners. At most, I had a few months left in me. Right before I was planning to leave, I received a text from one of my fellow workers. She asked if we could meet for a coffee after one of our shifts that week, which I thought was odd because we literally serve coffee all day. But I agreed, and it was at that meeting that she asked me what I thought about the possibility of Starbucks unionizing, to which I replied I'd never thought about it. I didn't know much about organized labor, but I did know that it included very little of the service industry and even less of the fast food service industry. But in spite of that, I asked her to tell me everything she could. When I was done, I calmly explained that while I was interested, I didn't know that I would have a lot of time to commit. After all, the theater industry was opening back up post-pandemic, and I was going to be very busy with production work. But I certainly had no intention of standing in their way. 
Then about a week after we filed our union petition, I was called into my first anti-union meeting with corporate. We sat in a circle at a hotel conference room and listened to Ross Ann Williams, the then president of Starbucks North America, tell us that we were all partners and that the company had already given us so much and at the same time she was threatening us. And I saw the looks on the faces of my coworkers as we were being bullied and manipulated into voting against our best interests. And that's the moment I realized that I could not take a passive role in this fight. That not actively working against my fellow workers was not the same as standing with them. They concluded the meeting by saying they were just giving us the facts and that if we wanted more information about the union, we should contact a union rep. So I raised my hand and I said, I'm one of the partner organizers and I'd be happy to answer any questions any of you may have. And there was no turning back from there. On December 9th, 2021, we won the first Starbucks union in the US at my store. Since then, our campaign has grown into a movement. As of today, we have over 320 unionized locations across the U.S., encompassing about 8,000 newly organized workers, with more joining every day. <laughs> I've been told many times that our campaign is different, that it is unlike organizing campaigns of the past. And while that's true in some ways, it's more accurate to say that what Starbucks workers are doing is an extension of what many worker organizers throughout labor history have already done. We've been able to harness social media and video platforms to talk with workers across the country and globe, and these have been invaluable tools. But the most important lesson of our success is that the basic elements of organizing are the same as they were 100 years ago. Our movement is rooted in the, in the ability to connect with one another on a human level, through the interests we share in our workplaces and industries. Using those techniques refined from previous organizing efforts, we have created a campaign that is largely worker-led. We refer to them as partner organizers. That means workers from organized stores connecting and helping workers organize at other stores. We also play large roles in other aspects of the campaign, such as communications, broader strategy questions, and media. I mentioned earlier how little I knew about organized labor before my involvement with this campaign, but that I knew it included very little of the fast food service industry. In large part, that was because it's an industry that has been long thought to be unorganizable for a multitude of reasons. Some of the most apparent being the average age of the workforce, very young, and the notoriously high turnover rate both of which can seem like a deterrent to unions hoping to organize these workers. But I'd like to take this opportunity to remind people that there have been other industries in history that also fit this description and were also once thought to be a lost cause, but are now highly organized, meatpacking and home care industries being just two examples. Like many low-wage industries, there is a pervasive way of thinking that has been drilled into most food service workers that the jobs are unskilled, that we don't deserve fair wages and safe working conditions, that being disrespected regularly is just part of the job, and if we don't like it, we can work somewhere else. Anybody who has ever spent a day on the floor in one of these cafes can tell you that these jobs are far from unskilled. Our labor is valuable. It brings in billions of dollars a year for Starbucks, and without our labor, the business would simply cease to exist. 
And the same can be said for every large corporation that makes up this industry. I hope that this movement is a small step in changing that way of thinking. Despite this overwhelmingly negative response from Starbucks and companies like them, we have found ourselves at the forefront of a new labor movement. Workers recognize their power and are choosing to stand together to demand change, not only for themselves and the situation at present, but for future workers in their industry. This generation of workers is looking to solve workplace issues for the long term. We want our industry to be a career for those who choose that, not just a stop along the way. By fixing the workplace issues that lead to high turnover and allowing for worker retention, we can truly create an environment where a democratic workplace can thrive, leading to a strong, lasting union. But it takes a lot of support to organize an industry like ours, and a lot of unions would consider our campaign too big a risk to take on. Fortunately for us, Workers United and SEIU have been willing to take on that challenge in the U.S. Our hope now is to expand this beyond the borders of our country and truly make this a global movement. Starbucks is a multinational corporation, and it is safe to say that the poor treatment of their workers is consistent across the world. And Starbucks is just one company that fits this description. There are many, many more just like them. The workers in my industry are ready to take on this challenge. Are you ready to support them? I'm often asked what it will take to win this fight. And to me, the answer is simple, at least in theory. We continue to organize. We continue to support our fellow workers. We stand together to condemn Starbucks' anti-union behavior, and we ask the public and all of you to do the same. Because we're not only fighting corporate, but also the public brand of Starbucks. If Starbucks truly were the progressive company it professes to be, it would recognize our right to organize and be a leader in the industry, both in the US and abroad. And I have a lot of hope that we will get there. But until then, we will continue to stand together, and we will continue to fight together. was uh, Michelle Eisen, <clears throat> organizer of a uh, union shop, Starbucks. <clears throat> and uh, Starbucks workers need our support. Here's an article about another campaign that's going on right now. Teamsters versus UPS. Teamsters walk out of bargaining after UPS makes insulting offer. 
insulting off. After reaching tentative agreements on all non-economic items, the Teamsters presented their economic proposals to UPS this week. Management's counterparcel on her proposal was so bad that the union bargaining team walked away from the table yesterday saying it would not meet again until the company makes a realistic and respectful economic offer. Some of the details of that offer, let's see what they were offered. The Teamsters will not bargain or accept any contract that's cost-neutral, Teamsters President Sean O'Brien said. UPS raked in a record profit of $13.9 billion last year. Contract expires July 31st, and last week UPS Teamsters voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike if necessary. Solidarity time. Practice picketing around the country will begin this week, and everyone's invited to show up and show support in the nation's biggest private sector union contract fight. Join a briefing with Teamsters for a Democratic Union this Wednesday to find out how you can help. On the Labor Notes website here, and that briefing will be Wednesday, June 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can sign up on the website. There's a button that says sign up here. So we'll see how that goes. Strikes already begun in Erie, Wichita, and beyond. After rejecting company's final offer, 1,400 members of United Electrical Workers UE are on strike today at Wabtec's locomotive plant in Erie, Pennsylvania. Fighting to build green locomotives, save jobs, and regain the right to strike over grievances, the right they used to have in their contracts with General Electric, lost after a nine-day strike in 2019 when Wabtec took over. You can donate to their strike fund online also. So check out the Labor Notes website to support that strike. Uh, let's see what else we got. Bad news here is Wisconsin's Democratic governor just signed off on the largest voucher school expansion. Anyway, check out on the Labor Notes website. And uh, let's take a break here for a minute, come back to our own neighborhood. I want to support um, what's truly a neighborhood presence in the mission, and that's San Jalisco restaurant. 
my favorite place to eat is Michigan. And I'm sure the favorite of many other people. Como México no hay dos. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas, tacos, chilaquiles, the ultimate in birria, best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order. How about your favorite vegetarian omelets, burritos, and tacos? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. So yes, come on down and say hello to the people there. To Josie and Sophie and Magda, all the people at San Jalisco. Okay, on now with some of the celebrations that are taking place. Of course, this is Gay Pride Week. And this is a, a little documentary about Stonewall. Stonewall Explained, it's called. Stonewall, of course, was the day in 1969 when mostly gay. Dray, well, I'm going to get all gay on you. Not in a creepy way. We're going to take a look in this episode at the 1969 Stonewall riots. But first, we're going to hopscotch a little bit through the beginning of the 20th century so we can find out what's going on. There's not too much gay history in American history prior to World War I, mainly because everything is so closeted and secreted. But we do, in 1912, have an incident called the Portland Vice Scandal, which occurred in Portland, Oregon, when a young man who was arrested for shoplifting seemed to blame a couple gold gay men on what he had done. And bada boom, bada bing, the next thing you know, we have a forced sexual sterilization bill in Portland. So if you were caught being gay, they would sexually sterilize you. In the 1920s, we have uh, Harvard University creating secret courts to out gay professors and gay students and expel them and fire them from their jobs. And in World War I, the U.S. Army created what was called the Blue Discharge, which, because there was no rule that you couldn't be gay, this was a way of getting rid of gay soldiers. And the Blue Discharge were used in both World War I and World War II. And actually, the GI Bill specifically eliminated people that had blue discharges from receiving any kind of benefits from the GI Bill. In the Roaring Twenties, we actually have kind of a flourishing of gay culture because everything was kind of pushed under the ground because of prohibition. So you have speakeasies in major cities that are making it easier for gays to get together, to drink, to dance, to do those types of things because the police don't know what's going on. And then in 1924, we have the first gay society, it's a temporary gay society, called the Society for Human Rights that was founded by Henry Gerber in Illinois. They actually um, produced a couple pamphlets called Friendship and Freedom, and that lasted for about a month before somebody turned to Ben for being gay, and they all got arrested. Um, and then really after World War II, uh, we have the explosion of the Red Scare and uh, homosexuals are being included on these lists with communists. 
because they're thought to be more susceptible to blackmail. Um, but there certainly is also an anti-gay discriminatory thing going on there. The FBI, police, the State Department, even the post office is tracking anybody thought to be a suspected homosexual and keeping their names. Um, and between 1947 and 1950, there were over 4,000 discharges from the U.S. Army for people being gay and over 400 state employees, government employees, that were fired from their jobs for being gay. So this brings us to right around 1950. I think it's time that we got a real organization. movement is Harry Hay. Harry Hay in 1950 created the Mattachine Society. And you'll notice a lot of these groups, including the lesbian group that was founded around the same time, the Daughters of Belitis, the D.O.B., they're not including gay and lesbian in their names because they're trying to kind of keep it subversive. There was actually, it was almost like a Mason society where you would have levels of secrecy and the higher you got up in leadership, the more that you would be informed. But everything is on the up and up. They're actually battling stereotypes. They don't like the idea of queens and cross-dressers and transgender peoples because it's kind of filling in that stereotype where they want to portray themselves as dresses and suits and ties and kind of all this stuff. And in 1965, the Mattachine Society in D.C. under Frank Carney staged the first gay protest in the United States. There's a picture of it right there. And you can see that they're in dresses and they're in suits and they're acting very normal. But even people in the Mattachine Society were outraged when they saw these people protesting because they didn't think that putting it in people's faces was the best way to get any movement on that. We also have the American Psychiatric Association um, in 1952 putting homosexuality on a list of mental diseases. And the study that they used to make that declaration was on a study of mental patients who were gay. So yeah, if you take a lot of mental patients that are gay, you'll probably find out that they're mental patients. Actually, Evelyn Hooker, a psychiatrist, did her own study in 1956, released it to the American Psychiatric Association, that showed that there was no difference in mental deficiencies between heterosexuals and homosexuals. But the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, is going to keep homosexuality on a list of diseases from 1952 to 1973. We have a little bit of movement in the Supreme Court. The first Supreme Court gay case is uh, One Inc. versus Olson in 1958 that involved a magazine called One kind of gay publication that was being sent through the mail that the United States Postal Service was uh, refusing to deliver. And they won that case. And it's kind of a landmark victory because now they can communicate through mail. That's a big deal because they can start to network and create larger organizations. In 1966, we have our first um, real act of civil disobedience that doesn't get a lot of press. It's called the Compton uh, Cafeteria Riots. And this is mainly the transgender community, but the police in Compton um, went into this um, you know, restaurant where um, the workers had called them because these people were being gay and they wanted to be served. And one of the transgender women threw a cup of coffee in one of the cops' face. And the next thing you know, there was a melee and chaos and they were ripping things up and burning things up. But Compton's cafeteria didn't spread. It didn't get enough publicity. And this is gonna prime us for Greenwich Village, 
So Greenwich Village is kind of in the heart of rebel territory, right? This is where the beatniks made their path. And you have gay beatniks like uh, William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg who are openly writing about homosexuality in the 1950s. But in the early 1960s, the mayor of New York City, Robert Wagner, actually began cracking down pretty hardcore on a lot of these bars that were serving gays. And it's important to understand that these aren't gay-owned bars. The mob owns these bars. But because it's the 1964 World Fair coming up and Wagner wants to clean up the city, um, they are basically entrapping people, they are throwing people in jail um, left and right in order to clean up the city. And even when Mayor John Lindsay was elected and he promised to stop all of that harassment, the New York State Liquor Authority still was going after bars serving gays because they claimed that they couldn't give a license to any bar that um, was disorderly. And because homosexuals considered to be disorderly, they weren't going to serve them. This led to the 1966 uh, Julius Sip-In. Um, the Mattachine Society in 1966 sent three guys into the Julius. They announced, we are homosexuals and we would like to be served. And you can see the bartender right there covering up their drinks. So there are people trying to get attention. Um, it's not radical. It's almost in the spirit of the civil rights, nonviolence kind of methodology. But it's not gaining traction. So this brings us to the late 1960s and the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street, which is a mob bar. It was owned by the Genovese family, and everybody knew it as the gay bar in the city. But um, it didn't have a liquor license. They washed their glasses in a tub in the back. Uh, the toilets were overflowing. There were no fire exits. And they were paying off police every week to keep themselves open. And even by paying the police off, they were still getting raided once a month but they were being tipped off by the police. So the raids were almost like a you know, kind of formal event that everybody knew about. But there's a lot of reasons why people think that the police went to close down the Stonewall on June 28, 1969. But the theory that I keep hearing over and over is that the mob was making more money on blackmailing the patrons of the Stonewall and like stockbrokers and stuff, and they weren't ready to give kickbacks to the police. So the police kind of had had enough with the Genovese family. So they made an unannounced raid on June 28, 1969, at about 1.20 in the morning. There were about 205 people at the Stonewall, and the way that the raids would normally work is there was a, first there was a peephole. You couldn't get into the bar unless the bouncer saw you, recognized you, some kind of idea that you were, you were gay. But the police just announced they were police, and they rammed that door down. And the way they usually did it was they would line everybody up, and if you had ID, they would let you go. And if you didn't have ID, or if you were a woman wearing man's clothes or a man wearing women's clothes, you were going to get arrested. But for some reason, things didn't go smoothly that night. There's claims that the cops were sexually harassing some of the lesbians, touching them inappropriately. Um, some of the transgender um, uh, women in the bar started to kind of talk back. Men were refusing to show their ID. And because some of the patrol wagons hadn't arrived yet, they were lining people up. And there were like 100, 150 people lined up. And there were about two or 300 people in the crowd outside that was growing. And this is a spontaneous event. This was not planned. So there's a lot of reasons why it probably happened. People were probably just bottled up with anger and frustration, and this was the opportunity. Um, but there was a there was a lesbian named Storme uh, Delavari who, when she was arrested and she was going back out to the car, she shouted to the crowd, "Why don't you guys do something?" 
And that was the trigger. And suddenly the place erupted. Coins and stones started getting thrown at the cops. Um, the cops started backing up from these, you know, mob of 200 and 300 gay people. They pushed them back into the bar. The police had to retreat, and they grabbed a couple people they had arrested, including uh, David Van Ronk, the famous folk singer, who's not gay, but because he's a member of the, kind of the beat community and the anti-police protest community, he's there. And suddenly he's in the bar with about 10 cops um, trapped as this mob outside tries to get in. They're breaking windows, they're burning garbage and sticking it into the windows, and they eventually pulled a meter off the ground and they use it as a battering ram to break the door down. So now that they're backed up in the bar, uh, the TPF arise, the tactical police force, because it's now like a full-blown riot. And the story is, is that the transgender women lined the streets as the TPF came, and they started doing the Rockefeller kick line, yelling, we are the Stonewall girls, we wear our hair in curls, we don't wear underwear, we show our pubic hair? The cops probably didn't like that, and that's when they took out the batons and they started beating heads. Um, and it's kind of the geography that allowed this riot to happen or, you know, the building patterns. There's tons of, like, crooked alleyways and places to hide. But from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock that morning, it was like Keystone Cops. They're running around trying to arrest people. There's hundreds, maybe a thousand people now that are rioting and burning and turning police cars over. Um, and at about 4 in the morning, it quieted it down. But the next night... People started arriving early, they were graffitiing um, the walls next to the stone wall with terms of gay pride, and um, that night the cops came out in force again, and they had another riot for about four hours chasing people around and confrontations and people getting beat up. Um, it rained the next couple days, that was a Monday and Tuesday. There was a small event where the Village Voice had printed an anti-gay kind of you know slant on that story, and about a thousand people showed up at the Village Voice offices. Um, threatening to burn them down. And then that Wednesday night, there was one more night of riots. And really, that's it. Um, uh, gay people after that, at least in that area, are not going to go back into the closet. And after Stonewall, we start getting the first organizations with gay in their titles, like the Gay uh, Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Association, that are going to now take a very more aggressive role in trying to change the tide of anti-gay discrimination in the United States. They would zap people. They would show up in reporters' faces and ask them questions about, you know, gay rights and such like that. Um, but really what's going to make this memorable is a year later. And that's June 28, 1970, where we have the first gay pride parade in New York City. And then by the next year, it's spreading across the country. And really, now we have a gay rights movement. Like it or not! So, we hope that you learned something about Stonewall, and we certainly thank you for watching a Hip Hughes History video. If you haven't subscribed, you can do that right there with that big red button. It's crazy. There's like 400 videos. You could watch it forever, and then you would probably not want to watch it anymore. But either way, thanks a lot, guys. Remember where attention goes, energy flows, and we'll see you next time that you press my buttons. So that's uh, one approach, one version of what happened at Stonewall. I think the main thing that we always get out of this, once you know the facts of Stonewall, you need to understand that this is the beginning of the gay liberation movement. and It hasn't stopped since, hasn't looked back since. Um, 
gay pride has become part of the national culture. The struggle now is against the right wing, this manic wing of American political system, this sort of mindless hatred of people because of their the way they want to live. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> Can you be who you want? I guess not. You can't. You can't have the same rights as other people, according to the right wing. Now, how many of the people on the, the far right really believe all this stuff? And how many are seeing it as sort of a culture war? At any rate, there it is. Stonewall. All right, let's just take a break here. Um, this is the B, and we're coming to you from Mutiny Radio, a true, true community arts center where you can get comedy, you can get radio, you can get video, you can get art. All these things are happening right here, right under your nose. <laughs> so to speak. Um, come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. You can uh, get yourself two hours where you can say pretty much whatever you want and talk about pretty much whatever you want. All right. Let's see now. Wanna something sweet now it ain't the melody and it ain't the music there's something else that makes this tune complete yes it don't mean a thing Oh, this is the wonderful time of my life. Stand in the rain and sing. And the people. 
people are so sweet to stay oh, here. Ain't this sweet? And I come in on them. Yeah. Let me tell you what I come in on.
maquiladora Love, I'm hanging on, we push and shove. Jose, 
obsession is the motivation that is hanging up the goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut everybody now trying to make it real compared to what children are killing frogs poor dumb rednecks rolling along tired old ladies kissing dogs i hate the human love of that stinking mud i can't use it trying to make it real compared to what come on what it's for nobody gives us a rhyme or reason half of one doubt they call it treason we're chicken feathers all the way Sunday sleep and nod, trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it, trying to make it real compared to what.
that be and where's that honey? Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values, a crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young King Tut. He did it now, trying to make it real compared to what? Les McCann there with, uh, compared to what? Before that, we had Rosetta Tharp. Uh, Didn't It Rain? And Las Cafeteras. Soy Mujer, I Am a Woman. Okay, I want to get now to our Juneteenth feature. And what it means to not just African-American people, but to everyone. Being able to go wherever they want it, being able to wonder. Juneteenth is a deeply emotional moment for enslaved people because for decades, for, for centuries, enslaved people prayed for, hoped for, fought for in the form of slave rebellions, running away, bought their freedom when they could. And if you read slave narratives, if you listen to spirituals from the era of slavery, you know that enslaved people longed for freedom. Then my 
this was something that had been hoped for, but many believe may never come. to give me forty dollars a month in bed. The lot said the boys said they ain't want it. They'd rather go free, you know. Being able to go wherever they wanted, being able to wonder about. For enslaved people, it was an expression of their freedom. Well, that photo was the one that that long missed photo, one of the high folks in there. He was coming along, we all sitting on the fence, and the colored children come along and asked her, did she want to go with him? And she said, yes, yeah, she might as well one of them horses. She went on with them. I never did see her in his ever no more. When I think about Juneteenth, I think about it in the context of Emancipation Day celebrations that began January 1, 1863. They took on a whole new meaning when slavery was formally abolished after 1865. You would have had African-American veterans who fought in the Civil War be prominent in these celebrations, dressed in their military garb, speeches from enslaved people, the most prominent black politicians singing of hymns, spirituals, discussions of, of registering to vote. Enslaved people celebrating in public their newfound freedom was an act of resistance. Because we have to remember slavery came to an end after a four years bloody, bloody civil war. Still the, the bloodiest conflict in American history. Many people in the South and in the nation who did not want to see slavery abolished fought tooth and nail to block the 13th Amendment. The abolition of slavery created a huge humanitarian crisis in the South. Suddenly, four million people have very little means to take care of themselves, to support themselves, and do so in a really, really hostile environment. So the military was necessary to make sure that enslaved people got the food, the medicine, the shelter that they needed in order to survive. They're also there to protect, to the extent that that was possible, freed people from violence, from recriminations from slaveholders, from Confederates who still hadn't given up the fight. And I remember when the Yankees stopped here, and the Yankees stopped right on the corner of the and the first people knew, we, we go to the ground field, and they take them hanging over the storm. That's the punishment they got. Next time you see, they come a whole troop of Yankees, all riding horses. When the last federal troops leave the South, it's a signal to Southerners. The federal government wasn't going to put its might into ensuring the civil rights of black people would be observed. You have 20, 30 years later, black people being lynched in public 
and there isn't a, a federal anti-lynching law to protect them. In most communities in America, there's a history of lynching and racial violence. And very few communities have marked that, commemorated that. Every decade since the end of slavery, black people have been more educated, accrued more wealth, more status in American society. Every decade since 1865. But there's been one constant, and that constant is the presence of random racist violence. I see in George Floyd's murder was a white police officer attempting to dominate and to subdue a black man who was not resisting, who could not resist. Even though slavery came to an end in 1865, the desire to master and dominate black bodies did not. And we have never dealt with that. These are the kinds of stark realities that are highlighted during Juneteenth. If black people's lives can be expunged through racist violence and no one is held accountable, how free are we? Are we free? Are we free? Are black people free? Can anyone be free if there's some people who aren't? The footnote to Juneteenth is that uh, the Civil War ended on April 9th, 1865, but it was several months before slaves in Texas were officially aware that they'd been freed. And the reason was that the planters, the cotton planters, wanted to keep their labor. See, there it is. A lot of things go back to labor. They wanted to keep those workers ignorant of the fact that technically they were free. They had been freed at the end of the war passage of the 13th Amendment. So a lot of Juneteenth celebrations didn't come until December, say, of 1865. But officially, June 19th was the day that slaves in Texas were freed officially. And as this teacher mentioned, that caused huge problems. Four million people all of a sudden own out of slavery. 
but into what you believe. And if you read history, there are these huge questions remain. Well, what happened to all those people? One by one, what happened to them? A lot of them were murdered. A lot of them were lynched. A lot of them died. Starvation. A lot of them had to stay where they were and become wage slaves in order to survive. What happened to their families? And all these things. History, and especially the history we're taught, is real. You have to imagine. Anyway, the term wage slave. Heard a rather glib version of what wage slavery meant. The guy was talking about slavery and the use of the term wage slavery and how they couldn't be compared because a slave had no rights at all and wage slaves at least have some rights. But he was missing the point of the word wage slave. Wage slave means someone who has to work, who has to get a job, who has to get wages in order to survive. While the situation, the, the way his job is set up or her job is set up, might allow for a certain amount of freedom, what we call freedom, there is still that slavery of having to have a job to survive. You're slave to the idea. And I wanted to read Lexicon of Labor. Our Emmett Bird. Wages. Read upon compensation for work performed. In a labor union contract, a pay scale sale spelled out specifically in the contract. There's little difference between wage and salary. There is pay after all, except subtle class distinction. Wages are generally paid to blue-collar unionized workers and manual laborers on a considered hourly basis. Salaries are generally earned by white-collar professionals
So the idea of wage slavery means you were forced to have a job to figure out some way to support yourself. So it's about, let's see, we're down to about 11.28. How about some labor history? I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day that the St. Paul Federation of Women Teachers, Local 28, received their charter from the American Federation of Teachers. That next February, the Minnesota Women's Union was joined by the St. Paul Federation of Men Teachers, Local 42. Organizing separate locals by gender was common at the time. It was not until 1957 that the teachers united together into one local. One of the founding members of the women's local was Mary McGuff. Mary had been a teacher since 1903. She was still an active participant in the union in 1946 when the Women Teachers Local 28 led the first organized teacher strike in United States history. At the time, the idea of a teacher strike was practically unheard of. In fact, strikes by public sector workers were explicitly forbidden and illegal. Despite this, 90% of the teachers voted to walk out on strike. The core issues of the strike were improving education, including a demand for smaller class sizes and improving the crumbling infrastructure of the city's public school system. The men's local joined the women on the picket line, but it was the women who organized the action. Mary McGuff was nearly 60 years old at the time. During the six-week strike, Mary took to the radio. Her voice shared the story of the strike with the public. One striker remembered that Mary was able to cut politicians to threads, but did it in a very ladylike fashion. Finally, the strike ended in victory for the teachers. In 1969, the union established the Mary McGuff Award, which honors teachers for the advancement of education in the St. Paul schools. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1972. That was the day that nine firefighters gave their lives in the line of duty in Boston, Massachusetts. The tragedy occurred at the historic Hotel Vendome. Built 100 years earlier, the hotel stood in Boston's Back Bay, one of the most historic neighborhoods in the city. The building was undergoing renovations and being converted into condominiums. A small cafe was open on the first floor, but the rest of the building stood empty due to the construction. On that fateful afternoon, workers noticed smoke. They sounded the alarm and 100 firefighters rushed to the scene. Within two hours, the fire was contained. Three engines remained for cleanup. Then, without warning, a portion of the building collapsed. 17 firefighters were trapped beneath two stories of debris. Nine firemen were killed, leaving behind eight widows and 23 children. No cause of the fire was ever determined. But it was found that the reason for the collapse was that a support column had been weakened during the renovation. 25 years later, a memorial to these heroes was unveiled, remembering the greatest loss of life in the history of the Boston Fire Department. 
In 2002, Bruce Springsteen released the song Into the Fire in honor of the firemen who gave their lives on 9-11. It's a song that stands tribute to those whose daily work is running towards danger, not away from it. Dark Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1865. That was the day that 2,000 Union soldiers marched into Galveston, Texas. With them, they carried the news that those enslaved were now free. The Confederate General Robert E. Lee had actually surrendered more than two months earlier. Why then was there a delay in delivering the news of emancipation to Texas? It might have been that there were not enough federal troops to enforce the order. It has also been speculated that freedom was postponed to allow enough time for the enslaved workforce to harvest one last crop of cotton before freedom. Whatever the reason, General Order Number 3 finally was delivered. It read, quote, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection existing between them becomes that between employer and free laborer. On hearing of the news, the newly freed people celebrated. The next year, they celebrated again in a holiday that became known as Juneteenth. In the years that followed, the holiday spread to other cities. But in the segregated South, black residents were often barred from holding Juneteenth events on public land. That is why in 1872, several black men in Houston purchased property and established Emancipation Park as a space to hold the celebration. In 1980, Texas became the first state to formally recognize Juneteenth. Today, this holiday is celebrated in black neighborhoods across the country with gatherings, barbecues, songs, and remembrances of the fight for freedom. Like what you hear? Check out more at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1943. That was the day that would go down in the history books as the 1943 Detroit Race Riot. The violence started on Belle Isle, a large island park in the Detroit River. Both white and black Detroiters were visiting the park on that hot, sunny summer Sunday afternoon. The fighting broke out among a number of the white and black youth. Such interracial fighting over the use of parks and recreation space happened frequently throughout the urban north during the 1940s. Soon, false rumors spread about white and black attacks on women and children. Fueled by these rumors, anger grew among members of both communities. The fighting spread across the bridge into the city. The next day, federal troops were called in to restore the peace. Over three days of fighting, 34 people were killed. 25 were black, including 17 killed by police and federal troops. Nine were white. The next month, 
the NAACP produced a report called What Caused the Detroit Riot? An Analysis. They found that one of the biggest reasons for the sharp racial animosity was the influx of new black workers into the Detroit labor force. During World War II, Detroit's mighty car industry converted its factories to wartime production. As factory workers went off to fight, demand for labor soared. Southern labor, both black and white, were recruited to come north. Many white Detroiters did not want to work with the new African-American hires. From March to May of that year, there were five separate work stoppages by white laborers over black hiring or promotion. At the Packard Motor Company, nearly 27,000 workers walked off the job over the upgrade of black workers. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1971. At 2.51 a.m., Battalion 12 Chief Leo Najarian of Los Angeles heard that there had been a tunnel explosion. That February, a 6.5 earthquake had killed 65 people in the area. Now it seemed tragedy had struck again. Just the night before, Chief Najarian had been called out to the same address. The Lockheed Shipbuilding and Construction Company was digging a tunnel over a mile long for the Metropolitan Water District. Chief Najarian had been called out when four workers were injured due to a minor explosion. He had found that the workers at the site were not testing frequently enough for methane gas. One spark from a tool could touch off an explosion. Leaving instructions to test more frequently, he left and spent the next day worried. So when another explosion alarm came from the same address, he rushed to the scene. There he found the second explosion was much worse than the first. Workers were trapped five miles into the tunnel. Rescue workers attempted to reach the trapped miners through a vent shaft near their position. Paul Badgley, a miner at the scene, was part of four rescue attempts. He described the heartbreaking effort, stating, quote, The first time we went in there, I could hear the guys hollering for help. The third and fourth time, I couldn't hear them. It's a hell of a feeling not being able to help them when you hear them hollering. Seventeen workers lost their lives. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the Lockheed Company was put on trial and fined heavily for their negligence. California passed stricter mining and tunnel laws and established a state occupational safety and health administration. 19 Los Angeles firefighters were awarded the Medal of Valor for their bravery. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Okay, that last item brings to mind the uh, last week. Our central in the news was a story of five uh, people on a submarine ride. On the Titan, they were going down on a submarine ride to see the Titanic. And for four or five days now, central in the news and Stories about the people who were on the sh- on the uh, diving bell uh, Titan have dominated the news at the same time now. Or five hundred people drown off the coast of Syria, off the coast of Syria, and headed for Greece. Refugees on a 
overloaded, a fishing boat that was overloaded and sank. Between four and 500 people died there, and uh, that sort of was mentioned in the news. Certainly not given the prominence. It seems like it's more important if some billionaire, millionaire, and their kids die. Hundreds of people die. Just an observation. Okay. Lemon Grove incident. Grove incident? I doubt it. I think we'll cover that next week. This was a situation in Lemon Grove, which is a uh, suburb, San Diego, where the Mexican-American community organized to support the right of their children to go to a school that was near them when they segregated. Cover that next week. I want to Talk about a little bit about how AI is being seen. Because AI is going to affect the work that we do in the future. So we've got something from Democracy Now! and concerns about how AI is going to develop and who's going to uh, have it have raised alarm about how AI and algorithms can spread racist and sexist biases. The group's founder, Dr. Joy Bolamwini, was among those who met with Biden Tuesday. She's going to join us in a minute. The group recently honored Robert Williams, who's African-American. And in 2020, he was the first known case of police wrongfully arresting someone in the United States based on a false facial recognition hit. When Detroit police wrongfully arrested him at his home as his wife and two young daughters watched. He was held overnight in jail, interrogated. The next day, police told him, quote, the computer must have gotten it wrong and finally released him. This is part of the acceptance speech by Robert Williams when he received the Gender Shades Justice Award. I just, I just want to say to, uh, to anybody who's, who's listening at this point, I guess, just to have the opportunity to let my story be a forewarning to the, to the rest of the world that if it happened to me, it could happen to you, right? I I just was a regular, regular. I was up, I was at work, and was trying to get home, and I got arrested for something I had that had nothing to do with me, and I wasn't even in the vicinity of the crime when it happened, right? So it's just that uh, I guess the way the technology is set up, everybody with a driver's license or a state ID is essentially in a photo lineup. For more, we're joined in Boston by Dr. Joy Bolamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, just back from that meeting with President Biden on artificial intelligence in Francisco. She's also featured in the documentary Coded Bias. Dr. Joy Bolamwini, welcome back to Democracy Now! You posted on Twitter uh, before meeting with President Biden that you were looking forward to the meeting to talk about the dangers of AI and what we can do to prevent harms 
already impacting everyday people like mortgages and housing in need of medical treatment, encountering workplace surveillance, and more. I assume and more you're talking about issues like this, uh, kind of um, false racial facial uh, re recognition based on AI. Can you talk about the Williams case and so much more, what you discussed with President Biden? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I am actually hopeful after this uh, roundtable with uh, President Biden because we started the conversation really focused not just on what AI can do, which we've heard a lot about, but centering how it's impacting real people like we saw with uh, Robert Williams. With the Robert Williams case, what we saw was a case of AI powered biometrics leading to a wrongful arrest. So the research that I've done and many others have done as well has shown documented racial bias, gender bias, and other types of biases in facial recognition systems. And when these systems are used in the real world, like we saw with the Robert Williams case, you actually have consequences. So for Robert to be arrested in front of his wife and in front of his two young daughters, you cannot erase those sorts of experiences. And then to be sleeping on a cold slab for 30 hours with just a filthy uh, faucet as a water source. So these are the types of real world harms that are concerning. And it's also not just on race, right? We have examples of hiring algorithms that have been showing uh, sexist hiring practices then being automated in a way that appears to be neutral. You have people being denied life-saving health care because of biased and inaccurate algorithms. And so I was very excited to see the Biden administration putting the real-world harms in the center of this conversation. Joy, if you could just explain, you know, how is it that AI has been, uh, has these kinds of biases? Because, of course, AI can only reflect what already exists. It's not coming up with something itself. So who are the programmers? How is it that these biases, as you say, not just on race, although particularly on race, but also gender and other issues, how are they embedded within AI systems? Well, the AI systems that we are seeing on the rise are increasingly pattern recognition systems. And so to teach a machine how to recognize a face or how to produce human-like text, like we're seeing with uh, some of the large language models, what you have are large data sets of examples. Here's a face, here's a sentence, here's a whole book, right? And based on that, you have these systems that can begin to learn different patterns but if the data itself is biased or if it contains stereotypes or if it has toxic content what you're going to learn is the good the bad and the ugly as well when it comes to large language models for example and then on the facial recognition side if you have the underrepresentation of certain populations it could be people with a darker skin it could be children for good reason we don't want their faces in those data sets then when they're used in the real world you have several risks one is misidentification right what we saw with robert williams case 
But even if these systems were perfectly accurate, now we have to ask, do we want the face to be the last frontier of privacy? Because we're then creating a surveillance state apparatus. Well, Joy, let's go to a clip. OK, we'll pick up this issue next week on something that's increasingly going to come and be a presence in our lives. And uh, it's anything like the other media that have become central to our lives. It'll be infected with our ideas. anti-people legislation, AI. Right now we're going to sign off. This is the B telling you to uh, stay tuned for Flat Black Plastic and Scott Walker. <laughs> um... This is the B. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work. Without a pattern, we'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, 
free sign by Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino. I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars on, hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses, the print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. I'll, it's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value and the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in whosthatlive.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to whosthatlive.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in a raffle, I guess. True, 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 true production. First Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. first Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy with Mutiny Radio. Incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the Bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy first Sundays of the month. Hotel Utah, 4th Street. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please, reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Baby! <laughs> happy, happy hour the, is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming 
live two seven eight one twenty first street come down be in the audience dog friendly dog fr- we are mutiny radio is absolutely dog friendly Ooh, a dog party ain't no party like a dog party <laughs> a dog party at mutiny radio every friday dog party <laughs> at mutiny radio happy hour two seven eight one twenty first street happy hour mutiny radio dot fm here in dot sf Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need. And ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine, and even in the drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Talk in public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that Who's that? go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey